Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur Show. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. For anyone who's out there who wants to find us, you can find us on Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs or on Spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts if you want to listen to an episode. So thank you, everyone, for listening in. Thank you for sharing the episode. Again, the reviews, the five stars, the sharing of the episodes for the entrepreneurs you support or businesses you support of theirs, that's awesome. And then obviously sharing it with any entrepreneurs that are out there that are trying to learn or maybe even want to go into being an entrepreneur in the food space, all of these help greatly. So thank you guys for all the sharing and things like that. Again, I appreciate all of it. If you want to be on the show, you can DM us or text the phone number that's on the at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs page. So thank you everyone for listening in. With that being said, back in Nashville. So we have another episode here. Um, I have Javier Salado of Soy Cubano. How are you doing today, Javier? I'm doing I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. I had the pleasure of eating at your restaurant today. So that was awesome um, and very much enjoyed the food. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But first, Javier, let's talk about your story. Like, let's go all the way back from your when you were a boy. Like, how, you know, how did you get your roots? Why Cuban food, so on and so forth. And, you know, what was it like for you growing up uh, before becoming an entrepreneur? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I think I grew up like um, any other kind of a working class um, neighborhood, uh, predominantly uh, Cubans at the time. Uh, as a kid, there was a little bit more mixed. So you have uh, not totally all every home being a Cuban household, but um, but there was majorities nonetheless. Um, so I, I felt like still the majority. Like since you know you would go to school and major all your friends were Cuban, kind of mostly first generation. Um, all of us had the same story. Our pa- parents were exiles that left Cuba. Um, in the 60s and started a new life in Miami. And uh, we're pretty much all growing up the same way. Same way. Uh, so I didn't feel any different from anyone else and um, just felt part of that community, the community in Miami, a Cuban community in Miami. So um, we all, you know, you had your friends, your neighbors, um, we're all, you know, same kind of lifestyle, same food. So we didn't feel any different. Um, and um, so the same food I ate in my house, I would eat in someone else's home. You know, obviously made it look slightly different, but it was same, you know, black beans and rice and uh, palomilla steaks and, um, you know, pan con chong sandwiches and cafe con leche and everything else. So that was just, you know, my childhood growing up, that kind of food. And that wasn't just my home. It was just everywhere we went. So, um, yeah, um, we, I didn't feel, um, we we're doing anything different from everywhere else. Like I would, you know, playing little league baseball my whole life and playing baseball, all the kids that played with me were also Cubans, uh, the coaches. So whenever we got together, um, that Cuban culture was just part of my life, which is same, you know, so we, you know, obviously, you know, we're, we never went out to eat um, very often, except for 
our birthdays. So we got to choose where we wanted to go. So maybe I chose Sizzler. There was a Sizzler right by my house. And I don't know if you ate or remember Sizzlers. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet, you know, and that was that was a luxury for us. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I remember those all you can eat buffets. <laughs> I love those things yeah, for some reason because yeah. I could eat nonstop because I, I'm a, I eat a lot. So I'm always a hungry guy, but I do remember those were the best things ever. But you think about it, their parents were feeding us for like minimum amounts and it was the world though, you know? Oh, for sure. We, we got it like once a year on our birthdays. We got to choose that one place because we didn't go out to eat very often. I know that there was a burger team around our house and every once in a while we'll get, some burps, some uh, whoppers, and then there was the um, pizza place that would get some pizza. But you know, every day was was Cuban food. So I grew up with that, and I, you know, was around me the whole time. So yeah, and uh, and I just kind of grew up in just again a working class um, household. My dad worked in a warehouse. My mom was you know took took care of kids at the house when I was younger, and then. When I was older, she was the lunch lady in our high school and, um, you know, got home and we would, you know, my dad or my mom will make dinner and it was, you know, it was kind of staples. And, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the way I grew up in eating food. Did you get a lot of exposure in Miami to other cultures and other food there? I mean, because Miami is a mixing pot of all sorts of cultures and different types of ethnicities and different types of foods would you say that you experience a lot of, di- of things like that as well you you would you would think that and most people assume that and always put miami in that but it does it's diverse but only in latin cuisine so and now not back then not in the 80s and such you know the the we didn't go out to eat very often so i didn't have that exposure i remember going to my like first Mexican restaurant. And I'm, look, I, was, I was probably in my twenties, you know, before, you know, like early to mid twenties when I ate my first um, Mexican restaurant, I was like, whoa, what's this, you know? And um, so no, we, I didn't get a lot of exposure to any other kind of food. So I had to uh, leave Miami to really start um, experiencing and just tasting other cuisines for sure. So from Miami, how'd you end up in Nashville? Like, tell me about your journey. How did you end up in food? Like, where where was the journey from when you were a kid? Now, you get at your you grow up in Miami. Like, where do you go from there? How do you end up opening a restaurant in your forties and and taking this entrepreneurial leap? So um, when I went, I moved to Fort Lauderdale, Boca, in my early 20s, and I was going to school in FAU, Florida Atlantic University, and I was studying there to be, you know, the fine arts and graphic design, and I had a roommate who was a little bit older, uh, a college student, but a little bit older, and he was from Europe, from Belgium, and he had, you know, had experience a lot of experience working in restaurants and just the food scene, so he brought actually my first taste of food and he would make these great dinners of pastas and lobster tails and shrimp and dishes. It was just really immaculate to me. It was just, and that's when I really started getting into it. And I started like cooking with him and, and doing that and and just, just experimenting on my own. And then, um, 
once I was done with school and working there, you know, I just kept on, you know, just trying to experience and tasting different foods and um, I ended up living in Charleston for one year in Charleston in the 2000s. And um, then I got really into it. Then. I really got into it. I started, you know, watching the Food Network a lot. And Emerald is my guy. He was awesome. So I mean, he was like, and still till today, he was the he was doing live cooking, like, like in front of a live audience. And that's like no one does that. Even today, like no one does that. If you think about it, they'll cook in front of a camera, or you know, and you can edit it. But doing it in front of a live audience like that that wasn't easy but so I followed him and just I just loved what he was doing and his and his recipes so I started you know writing everything down and going to the grocery store and making it at home and just yeah he he was he was the guy for me so that's that was the start of it and it just started developing you know home cooking and cooking at home and and building it from there and then ended up moving to Nashville because Nashville had a really cool scene going on and again I wasn't thinking I was going to be you know working in the restaurant industry I was working in, in design and graphic arts at the time and and um, I moved to Nashville and Nashville had a really cool progressive scene at the time um, there really seemed to be really um, encouraging each other and supporting each other in in small businesses and something you definitely do not see in Miami. You do not see that in Miami. It's so competitive there and everyone's trying to step on each other to get ahead. Nashville was a complete opposite. Nashville was like, hey, you know, everyone supports each other. So um yeah, like so Nashville was was a place I wanted to like, you know, settle in for a little bit. I didn't think I was gonna be here for 20 plus years, but um yeah, so I ended up in Nashville and, you know, I couldn't get work in design after 9-11 and I ended up working in restaurants and bartending and serving to, you know, pay my bill with like people and food. And I go, maybe there's, there's something here for me. So, you know, almost 20 years later, I decided to, you know, continuing on the food, just loving it and Falling in love was just the, and having a passion for the restaurant industry. Um, I decided to just do it on my own after the pandemic and taking a huge leap. And so, let, let, I mean, why Cuban food? Let's start there. Did you get a lot oh, of experience oh, yeah. like that? That was easy. Yeah, that, that was uh, just, that was an easy one because I, once I decided to do something on my own, I mean, Although I've tried different cuisines, I've experimented with some and, and you know, worked on it. And they weren't mine. They weren't my own, right? I don't, like, I could try Italian, right? But I'm not Italian. I don't know the taste, what exactly, you know, the marinara sauce should taste like or whatever sauce should taste like or the pasta. Man. I, 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 you know, I'm not that skilled when it came to those type of cuisines. So for me, Cuban food, came easy like I knew what it should taste like I knew what it should look like I knew just the way it should be done so it made it an easy decision for me to do Cuban food uh now when I started I didn't never thought there was going to be such a gaping hole in Cuban food in, in Nashville 
when I was thinking about it, there had to be like two reasons why there wasn't any Cuban food here. One was, you know, there wasn't a market for it. Maybe people tried in the past and just wasn't a market for it. Or two, you know, um, you know, it just wasn't done right. And I think, I think it was just never done right. And from my experience that we've been open now, you know, in our physical location for a year. Um, and so, you know, it'd be kind of like one of the first to be part of that. I, I think one of the cool, coolest things about what you're doing is sort of the ability to grow the business in the way that you are. And yeah. like, and like people here haven't had the food, that Cuban flair, that truly authentic way of cooking. Um, a lot of people just a Cuban, uh, sandwich, for example. And I know that there is, you know, this thing going on in the United States in Denver, there was a chain starting to grow called Cuba, Cuba. Um, and they were just, they're starting to grow and get momentum. So there's an understanding and an appreciation for the Cuban food, I think, as Americans obviously have experienced Miami, that's part of it. There's sort of the opening up of Cuba um, in terms of maybe there's the ability to travel there and things like that in the American mindset. And I think that's starting to expose the uh, curiosity. Yeah, I, think, I think it's it, Cuba is just right there, yeah, but it almost seems unattainable and it has this mystery behind it that that um, people are just gravitated to the culture and everything else with it. So, um, and uh, yeah, I, I think there's there's a love for it for that reason. But, you know, I don't think the American, um, like the U.S. has been, you know, exposed to a lot of Cuban food or cuisines. And if they have been, it's been... Uh, a fusion of something else or it's an elevated version of Cuban food. So they might, you know, have different ingredients that maybe Cubans don't use in their cooking, but just to make it more common, more known, or just nicer, right? Or like elevated, you know, because, you know, Cuban food is, it's similar to, let's just say like Mexican food in the sense of, of it's, you know, it's just home cooking. I mean, it, it can be still delicious, but it's to me, it's it's the most delicious in its most basic form, um, and its most traditional form. So, um, uh, so yeah, I I think I think where most people I've noticed and I'm trying it out now, going around the country and, and trying out different styles of human foods and what they're doing, and I, and I think that's where people have missed is is their trying to change it up a little bit too much. It's just good the way it is. And and what are some of the classics? Let's talk about your menu. How'd you come up with yeah. your menu? What are the items that sell the best? I mean, I've had some of the items on there, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but what, how'd you come up with your menu? What are the items you're choosing and, and what are seems you do specials and stuff like that? So let's talk about that as well. Sure. So my, my menu is pretty, pretty basic. Um, it consists of like uh, one empanada, one beef empanada, which is the most popular empanada when it comes to, you know, Cuban food is the uh, beef empanada. It's a picadillo, which is a ground beef. And the ham croqueta, uh, the ham croquettes. And then we have sandwiches, which are like, like the, the most popular, which is the Cuban sandwich. And the pan which is a steak sandwich, 
Hong Kong Lichong. So we have those three classic Cuban sandwiches. The Frita Burger is also um, very classic Cuban um, kind of sandwich. Um, and then we have like plates, what we call plates with the mojo pork and palomia, which is the steak. We have a chicken and then we have a special that we that we rotate because we work out of a smaller kitchen, so we can't have a full full menu. But everything that we make, we it's something that I grew up one, I grew up eating, right? That I'm familiar with and I grew up eating. And and so you know, certain foods that I you know I might not make, like I I tried doing these, you know, camarones and chilao, which are like uh, shrimp etouffee and uh, it just didn't work with the public you know they wanted it spicy because they they think of that dish and they think of new orleans and they think of it having a certain different uh flavor profile and it just didn't work right so um so i try to keep my menu where it's kind of simple and it can just it crosses right it crosses and people can you know um I feel could just relate to everyone. And also, I also have to be able to understand and understand and know that that plate is on point, right? Because I know that I'm familiar with that plate. I love it. And so what do you say, what's the difference? Like, how do you distinguish Cuban food versus say Italian food or Indian food or Thai food or Mexican food, since we talked about those a little bit circularly. So how do you, what makes the basis of Cuban food? What's the difference? It's an Island country. Okay. And, but its popularity here is, is pretty amazing and, and growing, I would say. So yeah. what is the flair that makes it different? Well, one, it's not spicy. So you mentioned uh, Mexican food and it, a lot of Asian cuisine and Indian food has heat to it. And a lot of those cuisines have heat. And Cuban food has like zero heat, like no heat. And the heat level is like zero. So, um, so that's, the, that's one big difference that Cuban food has. I think it, they, I work with a lot of vinegars. So we, we put a lot, some vinegars in a lot of our dishes, wine. Uh, our bases, just like um, New Orleans, they have the, the Trinity. We have something similar to it, which is garlic, onions, and green bell peppers. And that's kind of like the base. Wines and vinegars create the sauce called sofrito. And that's kind of your base for almost every dish. That's pretty much your base for everything. And that, so again, is the onions, the the garlic, and the green peppers, did you say? Yes. Yeah. So that's the base of vegetables and the base of sauce is tomato sauce, wine, and a vinegar. So that's pretty much the base. So that's kind of what you're working with the whole time. It's garlic, onions, wine, vinegar, olive oil. So I use, we use a lot of olive oil, too, in our dishes. So and is, is pork like a preferred animal? I'm just curious because there's a lot of ham. There's a lot of pork as an item. I love pork, so I'm, I'm just wondering because I see it on a lot of the dishes. I mean, are is that the more common? Is it a pork and chicken the more common things in Cuban culture? Yes, that and fish. So you have uh, uh, pork, chicken, fish, and you also have like beef, but I think pork is probably the leader. When it comes to that, those kind of meats, it's definitely pork is the leader. You have the traditional like um, noche buena meal, which is 
uh, the roast pork and you roast a whole pig in a cajachina, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with that roasting box, it's like a roasting box where you put the charcoal on top and the, and the hog is inside the box. So it heats from the top in, so inside the box. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that's kind of traditional. In Nochebuena, which is Christmas Eve. Um, so yeah, pork is 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 the leader when it comes to that when we're doing traditional dishes. So like the masitas de puerco that you had today is like my favorite and it's kind of a very popular uh, Cuban dish. I would say, man, Cubans love masita de puerco with congrio, which is what you had today too, which is the black beans and rice cooked together, um, which is that black rice. Um, so the congri, I would say, is the most popular to Cuban cuisine, and um, you can always judge uh, a place by their congri. If they make congri, that means they put a lot of love into the food, because it's not that, for me, my opinion, it's not easy to make good congri. So if you can make some good one, that means you have, you put some time into it. Will you explain the difference between the normal rice and beans and congri, which you're talking about? Because there is a difference, obviously, and I just want to give a, the audience a verbal visualization. Sure. So typical black beans and rice, you have white rice with maybe you might go to a Cuban restaurant and have like a little uh, a ramekin or a, a cup of just kind of a black beans and kind of like a soup. Right. And you can put pour those black beans, that soupy black beans on top of the white rice. And that's your typical black beans and, and white rice. And then congri is what you you cook actually the the black bean broth. So you you kind of you know you boil the beans and get the dye out of the, the beans and create that, you know, the water be black. So you have that black broth. And you pour it into the rice and you cook the rice in that, you know, black broth or the black beans. And that's what creates its, its color. Um, so the key is to make sure you have it as dark as possible. You don't want gray rice. You want it as, as, as black as possible. And you're also working with, you know, um, you're cooking rice. So you don't you want it to be definitely not sticky. It has to be loose. And you want the beans to be you know, tender, not hard. And you also don't want them to open up while you're cooking them because once they open up, that starch is released and then the rice becomes sticky. So you have, a, there's a lot of uh, things to think about when you're cooking that congri, when you're cooking them together because you have to make sure the rice is cooked, the beans are cooked at the same time, at, you know, different levels, different times. And then, you know, so there's a lot of um, things that have to work at the same time for it to come out correct. So if you can master that and you have good congri in a restaurant, that means they have everything else is, is pretty much good. So what was it like? Okay, you how'd you find a space to build this in, in Nashville? How'd you choose the yeah, space and, you and chose? I missed your question earlier about oh. the way we started. Yeah, and I, I didn't get into that. And I think um, yeah. the way we started, you know, I started um, in the pandemic around, I really started selling food out of the house when we were all quarantined. And I was bored out of my mind. And um, I'm like, what about if I asked my wife, what about, what do you think if I just sell food out of the house? You think people will buy it? And then she goes, I don't know, try it. And I tried it and we sold, like, sold it really fast. 
And I noticed how popular it was. And then um, at that moment, you know, I felt it was very fulfilling, you know, actually making my own food and giving it, sell, you know, delivering it to the public and getting a great response and getting, you know, busier and busier. Every week we were selling food out of the house that, you know, I was like, wow, maybe there is something here for me. So that's when I decided to do something on my own. Um, but I wanted to do it with as little cost as possible because I didn't want to spend, you know, my my whole, you know, I didn't want to pull money out of the house or do anything else like that or bring in investors or pulling out a loan. So we did it as little as possible. So I bought two folding tables like from Costco, 50 bucks each, about two uh, pancake riddles from Target. I think it was 25 bucks each. And then um, I decided that the way to start is to do Cuban sandwiches. So, you know, I figured out how to make, I found a space in, um, in a commissary. And, um, and then, you know, obviously I was working in the restaurant industry. So I had a connection with food vendors and uh, I got in contact with them. And, you know, got food delivered to the commissary and they just started prepping one weekend. And then one weekend, the next, on a Monday, I just started selling Cuban sandwiches from the commissary and just started building my business from there. And then I, you know, I, again, this was around August of 2020, you know, I felt I needed to, you know, get out of the commissary and try to serve my food in other places. I reached out to farmer's markets and the first farmer's market told me they were booked. So I, they, I wasn't able to get in. And then I reached out to another farmer's market. They were wary about the way I was doing it because I was setting up, again, two folding tables, electric pancake griddles, and then, um, you know, bringing with the sandwiches because I would prep, you know, like a hundred sandwiches or more. And, and set it outside, already prepped, like setting it outside and then cooking there. So it was cooking the sandwiches there, like on a, you know, where people might sell like soaps. I'll be sitting right next to them, you know, pressing sandwiches, these pancake griddles. So they're a little wary. So they didn't really take me in, but I reached out to another farmer's market and they were a little bit outside the natural area. So they were <laughs> a little bit more flexible. So they took me in and I started selling in that farmer's market and we became super popular really quickly. And um, we were like one of the first to actually, we didn't have a food truck. We we're literally in a little space and, you know, pressing sandwiches on pancake griddles and selling it to the public like that hot. And you were only getting food like prepared foods like cookies and pastries and stuff from farmer's markets or like raw, you know, foods that you have to cook at home. You weren't getting hot food ready to eat at a farmer's market. So we were delivering that to a farmer's market that was kind of new at the time. And, um, and then the other farmer's market that told me, no, heard how popular we were and just took a leap on it. And then, so yeah, we, we started going farmer, farmer's market or farmer's market and selling Cuban sandwiches. And we started getting a name for ourselves. And then we, we started um, going, doing pop-ups at different breweries and bars. And again, 
you know, we just started rolling from there. And again, with a very minimal cost, very minimal cost of just, you know, a few thousand dollars to get started. I think, I think I can honestly tell you, Justin, we, I started with five, I started the business with $5,000. That's getting all my business licenses, my food delivered and everything to get to sell $5,000. What sandwiches were you offering at first when you're doing these pop-ups and stuff like that? Like what, I mean, cause you weren't, you didn't have the menu you have now at Soy Cubano um, yeah. that you have in your physical location. So what was that like uh, running out of a commissary and then doing these pop-ups? What it, were the sandwiches? Um, so cause so it was limited. Similar. Yeah, I was, I was limited because there was only so much space out of my car and I'll prep all the sandwiches and there was so much space I had there. So, so if you imagine, you know, 150 sandwiches pressed, I mean, prepped in containers, you know, I had like two big containers full of sandwiches and it took a lot of space. And so I took two sandwiches. I always took two sandwiches. One was always a Cuban. Then I took another one that was kind of a veggie sandwich since it is um, uh, a farmer's market and a lot of people were looking for vegetables and stuff. And, so I felt it was important to have a, a, a so I create, which we use manchego, truffle butter, and mushrooms, uh, portobello mushrooms, which I still have the menu today because it was so popular. We created that sandwich. We also had a, a sandwich with ham, cheese, avocado, and chimichurri. Now these are all these, uh, which we call the cha-cha, which is cheese, ham and avocado cha-cha so that's that's something that we serve too um and then we have we made pastries to have because we'll get there early in the morning and um so we just felt it was important to have pastries so we made guava and cream cheese pastries and sold it there um and that's kind of that's pretty much it so we had we'll take some pastries and two sandwiches and that's how we we would, that's what we'll do. And then we'll, we'll be there until we sell out. Um, so how did you make the transition and how did you get the confidence, save enough money? What was enough money? Did you feel to go into a brick and mortar? Like, how do you make that transition? Cause you talked about not wanting, you wanted to bootstrap your way along, uh, for lack of a better term. So yeah. how did you yeah. make the decision? What is that decision? Well, like, sorry. so yeah, I, w- I was, I was, so I was putting reinvesting everything into it and really didn't pay myself much or at all for a few months. But this was my only source of income. So I had to pay myself something back, you know, and I was the main, you know, person bringing in the income to the household. So I had to bring some money in. So I was reinvesting it to, you know, you know, the restaurant or the pop-up to Soy Cubano. Um, lucky enough, the wash where I'm at right now was became available early on when I opened in 2020 and uh, like meaning early on when we we launched in August of 2020 a few months after that you know someone approached me on I spoke to them and it was with very little cost to get in there uh the wash provided um the whole build out in the sense of all walls all mechanicals uh, a hood and a walk-in cooler and a three-compartment sink. All so all we really had to do was bring in our equipment and the food, and that was a good way for me to get started and test and, and test my concepts. 
So it was important for us to, you know, it's, it's cool that we're doing pop-ups and everything and selling sandwiches and we're popular, but we're, you know, that was, we couldn't do that. I couldn't live that, that life or with that income, you know, so I knew I had to grow to the next step and the wash gave me the opportunity to do that. So, um, knowing I was going to go into the wash and knowing it was going to take another like year or so to get built out and stuff. The whole time I was going through, um, these auctions and buying equipment through auctions. So I'm buying like, you know, small layers, like pans, boom. And, you know, anything that wasn't like electrical or, you know, anything like that, you know, that I felt like coolers or anything, any small wares I can buy, I bought it in through auctions, like, you know, pennies to the dollar. And then um, I will go to a Facebook marketplace to see if there's anything I can find. So I was like hoarding these equipments little by little, you know, a couple hundred dollars at a time. And then um, I came across this one Facebook page that they were selling a bunch of equipment and, um, and it was an old Moe's, like, welcome to Moe's. And they were selling a bunch of their equipment. And I just picked a bunch of stuff that I felt I was going to need. And I worked out a deal with them. And, and I just, that's how I, I, I think I, I spent like $2,000 with that and I, equipment today. It got me a big sandwich cooler. It, get, it got me a fryer. It got me um, a flat top. It got me a four burner stove. Um, it got me a bunch of prep tables and man, that was, that was a great start. That was a great start. So for like, I think around like $35,000 total, total, I was able to get into the wash. That means shelves, small wares, everything, uh, you know, uh, espresso machine. Uh, then I bought another cooler, everything together. I think ultimately it was only about $35,000 to get my business started. And I had about $10,000 saved up, which is not a lot, but it was just for my business, right? Doing the pop-ups. And then I, you know, Square has like a loan program where you can pull out a loan and then they'll, you know, you have to pay them back through, you know, daily through the percentage of your sales. So I think I was able to pull out like $25,000 or something like that. No, excuse me. That no, wasn't very much. It was $15,000 and that helped me get started. And I, we, I paid off that it was fifteen thousand dollars, and I think about like four months. Oh, I love this! I didn't know they did that. That's a really cool program. That's a phenomenal that program, awesome. actually. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, it's as fast as you make money. Hello. As fast as you make money, you pay off the loan program. That's really cool. I think that that's one of the things that I like that you just mentioned, it's just like, it could be a while, it could be shorter, but I think that that program, I didn't know it existed, but it's really cool. I, I'm glad you said it. When you were doing the pop-ups and stuff, were you just cold calling? How did you line them up? I mean, eventually maybe they line you up. I don't know how that works. And now what happens now that you have a brick and mortar, do you still do pop-ups? And um, so there's two questions there. So when I first started doing bar, I was fortunate that a friend of mine owns a bar and they, after restaurants in Nashville, they had to have a certain percentage of food sold in their bar, right? To be open. So they asked me to sell food there as a pop-up. The pop-up scene, again, was very minimal to like none at the time. 
this was again August September of twenty, and um, and then I just started selling the food. I think I started doing brunch there, and then one night, and that's how I started. And then you know, obviously, it gained some popularity, and then um, it, it gave me, you know, the ability to go to someplace else. Like, hey, I do a pop up here. This is what I, this is what I've been doing. This is what it brings in. You know, I think it can help, you know, help me. And I think it can help your business bring in more people. So that's kind of how I started. And after a while, they were, they were contacting me. They were contacting me to do pop-ups. So, um, but it took a while, especially when it was still kind of a new concept. And at the time, you know, um, uh, again, people needed to sell more food in their, in their, in their bars and breweries. So they needed these pop-ups to exist and there are a few of us and then you know um yeah they're just calling you for for to go out there because you know it was also you know it was not only you know selling the food there but also giving them more social media presence because now you know my followers our followers will follow them and see hey okay wow they know that brewery was there or whatnot so it gave them more visibility as well so it was you know it's definitely a partnership and and we you know i've definitely built relationships with those kind of pop-ups and then there were certain pop-ups that gave me the ability to that pop-up gave me the ability to serve food where people can come in and sit down and eat because of the commissary people were just taking it to go and at the farmer's market they were also taking it to go so this allowed me to test certain thought or know you know what i could work on how i was going to plate the food to you know all that is very helpful before opening up you know brick and mortar you know all that you know testing recipes and testing you know um quantities and testing you know plating and all that is very helpful so when i got into the brick and mortar man i was i was boom i was ready to go and, and then i was able to hire staff and work with me a little bit right before we opened the brick and mortar and the wash, because now they're trained. Now we could open up and they already know, you know how the food goes and how to prep food and everything else. So, and, and we started with a small, and so we started with a small menu with limited hours because obviously we're not familiar, we weren't familiar with that kind of volume that we're gonna get. We're used to, you know, you know selling a certain amount on small pop-ups for three to four hours. Now we're going to be open for eight hours. How much food do we need? You know, so we worked with a smaller menu and more limited hours until we got really comfortable and started building and gaining, you know, knowledge and experience working in that space. And um, so, you know, so I don't recommend, you know, people just go, you know, seven days a week, you know, lunch and dinner, you know, no, you work with within your means and just build it that way because the last thing you want to do is stretch yourself and then you're giving poor quality food and, you know, bad service. And so we were always very focused on making sure that we're giving the best food, you know, the best service we can. So if it's limited, it, it is what it is, you know. Awesome. I love it. Do you still do catering and stuff? Do you still do the pop-ups now with uh, having a brick and mortar? I'm sorry. Yeah, so the no more pop-ups. That's really hard work because you and pop-ups. You're working, man. You're working like eight hours without even walking into a kitchen 
at 8, 10 o'clock in the morning, no, I'm going to start selling at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So just to prep some stuff that I have prepped before and then load everything into my car and then go to the location, unload, set up, and then finally sell something. That's it. And then, you know, you're selling for three to five hours and then you're closing up, cleaning, you know, loading your car back up and then taking it back to the commissary to unload it there. It's about eight hours of work for like, you know, three to five hours of actual making money. And it's not really worth it. You know, when you have options of like a restaurant now, um, uh, a pop-up is great to test a concept when you're working with it's you and one other person, when you don't have a lot of uh, labor costs. Um, but like if we decide to do a pop-up today, you know, I would have to pay, you know, a crew of two to three people to, you know, load, unload, set up and all that. That's, that's labor cost of like, you know, six hours per person without selling a dollar yet. It doesn't make, it doesn't make financial sense to do pop-ups, but but catering is a totally different story. Catering, we do, we do, we we slowly are building up to more of a catering business. We took initially, we didn't take any because we didn't want to overwhelm ourselves. And then um, a few months into the business, um, we started feeling more again more comfortable. We started doing smaller catering gigs, and then now uh, we do you know 300, 300 people weddings. So. Um, uh, our menu is still limited for catering because we haven't expanded much for the catering when it comes to food. But when it comes to quantity of food, we do whatever. Um, so, but catering is it's great because, um, yeah, we can, we can, you know, we already have the physical people in the restaurant already working. Now they can make the food for the catering and now we can just drop it off. We don't we don't do like full service catering. We just essentially just drop off things off. Do you use delivery services like DoorDash and stuff like that or whatever that's that's on there for yeah. that is pretty popular here in Nashville? Yeah, the third party deliveries we use um, uh, Uber Eats slash Postmates because they're like one now, and they're the most popular in Nashville. So we use them, um, and they've we have a printer with them. It's really hard when you have a POS system that doesn't work combined with the uh, third-party delivery because then you have like, I don't want to have like six different tablets. Yeah, I just want to have one. And uh, we use them and, and it definitely helps a lot. Well, now they take about anywhere between like 20 to 30%. I will say mostly 25 to 30% of the sales. So as a small business, you know, we can't afford that because that's that's actual, like, that's where we make our money. Um, we raise our prices, you know, we raise our prices uh, 25 to 30% across the board, essentially, to make that money back. Um, so what you might order online or come to the window, you might get it. We sell our Cuban sandwich for $13. If you order it through third-party delivery, it's $16. Yeah, I agree with you because the 15% charges now that they just charge the consumer and charge the merchant, they make it on yep. both ends. It's 
and they're the gatekeeper now. They can literally slow down your business by saying you're too busy to take the order. So, I mean, it's one of the craziest things that we've turned over all the ability to a third party in our businesses as entrepreneurs. But right now, it's it's what happened during COVID, and uh, a lot of us grew businesses during that time. But also, the delivery business just skyrocketed. It's just crazy how much how many people make a living off of it now as well. So, uh, Javier. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, the third-party delivery for us is about like twenty-five percent of our sales, so it's it's significant. It's it, it's it makes it definitely makes a difference, and we just I just got in contact. We're I'm communicating with Uber Eats now. We've made a couple deals, like specials on Uber Eats, uh, and man, we've we've really um, have you know, blown up on that, on the Uber Eats and third-party delivery. I'll tell you, like, one of the, I was, there was a concern for me, Justin, initially about, you know, the food quality and when it gets there. But, you know, I think, I think there's just, uh, an understanding across the board when people do order from, you know, a delivery service that the, it's not going to be the same quality. And it will, it, it might take longer, you know, and there's a chance they might be missing something, you know. That's those are the chances. It's a, it's so crazy to me. It's me being, I guess, from an older generation, it's so crazy to me that you'll pay thirty percent higher price on something, lower for lower quality, and take the chance something might be the order might be wrong. Well, and it's put in the hands of someone who might not have ever been in the food business. Like the last, yeah. the last hurdle is by a total amateur for for mostly i mean there's maybe some people that have been in food that can that take their job seriously and i think a lot of people do but there's a lot of people that have never handled food don't know how to handle it like don't keep the food warm don't put it in the warming bags i mean we could go on forever and so i think it's just it's going to get there eventually in a higher standard but it's just crazy we've turned over a lot of it so um, you almost you almost have to look the other way, and I'm sorry. You almost have to look the other way because I remember one time I was the commissary picking up, and uh, for whatever reason they couldn't pick it up, so they ordered from the delivery service, and they ordered a bunch of food. I had like three bags full of food, and I was taking it out to the delivery driver, the third party delivery driver, and they there was about six to seven people in that car. And they were putting it on their laps and they were all eating some other food. And it was just, I, it was like hurting my heart, you know, how much love and passion you put on something and you just give it to someone else. And that's the way they're treating it. It just, it's heart wrenching, man. <laughs> it hurt. I was, I, I had to look the other way. I'm like, I can't think about it. I can't, I'm talking to myself. I can't think about it. I can't put the food. I can't, I can't, they're waiting for, I can't, I can't. And I just, I just try to forget. I just try to forget about it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah. Javier, as we have a few more minutes here, one, I love the food. I was I was blown away by it, and I, I want to talk about it more, and I hope to get you back on another episode because I have a lot more that I think we can talk about in, in the growth of your business and sort of as we get into summer, the popularity, I think, that you're going to see. So I will be reaching out for sure. But what have been your mo- – what's your greatest motivations in life um, – you know, where, how are you inspired? What keeps you going every day? And what drives you to do this business? Uh, to be in the restaurant industry is not easy. And everyone knows that, you know, I don't have to say that everyone knows how difficult it is, but you, if you don't have a true passion, 
for the restaurant industry. If you don't have a true passion, there's meaning you cannot do anything else. There's nothing in the world that can fulfill you like that work, that career. That's the only way you can do it. That's the only way. That's for me, the only thing I can do in life is that. That's it. Right. And, and, and I truly do have a passion and love for it. And I truly have a passion for bringing like just Cuban food that I grew up with, you know, to the people and just seeing the joy, everything about it. But, you know, truly, I do this for pure freedom, pure freedom to have the freedom to make choices that I want to make for the business and my life. And once you start working for anyone else, you lose that. Once you bring in a partner, uh, a business partner, you lose that. Uh, so just having the choice of freedom motivates me, knowing, hey, I can actually even close today if I feel like it. Having that, knowing I can do that, and I have done it just because I want to take a weekend to, I don't know, to the mountains. I've done it. You know, knowing I have that freedom just means everything. Awesome. Thank you, Javier, for your time. Yeah, no I really appreciate it. Um, they can find you online, I believe, at Instagram at Eat Soy Cubano. And that's pretty awesome. Uh, you can find also, we talked about on Uber at, um, if you're in Nashville, you can order it from there. Wh uh, what's the address if they wanted to go to your location, especially now as it's getting warmer outside, they can eat outside. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, you can also order delivery and, and pick up through our website at eatsoycubano.com. Uh, and then you can, our address is in East Nashville, and it's at 1101 McKinney Avenue. That's 1101 McKinney Avenue. And, uh, yeah, you can go there. If it's a beautiful day, I recommend just going there and just, you know, there's drinks. There's other foods there you can eat that's awesome. You can come pick up some ice cubing coffee, which is awesome. So, yeah. Yeah, the coffee is outstanding. I had to have a second. I went back for more. I loved it so much. So um, awesome. I appreciate awesome. Thank it. You. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. I love you guys. Like I said, we're going to get Javier back on another episode here to to just keep you know picking his brain on all of this and and what's going on here. I love it. I love it. To, I love the food. I was really impressed. Um, Thank you again, everyone, for listening in. If you want to find us, we're on Instagram at just the food entrepreneurs, or you can listen to us on Spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts. And we're out.